Hey guys, this is Pastor Kyle here alongside Pastor Bailey. Grateful that you guys have tuned in to our podcast. We trust that what you're about to hear will be beneficial for your day, and we're grateful that you've stopped by to hear what the Lord is doing in Milledgeville. Well, amen. If we haven't met or we're not really familiar with one another, um, my name is Pastor Kyle. I have the privilege of serving as one of our pastors here. Uh, Go ahead and be finding your way to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning as we are continuing in a really just verse-by-verse study through the book. If uh, you haven't been with us, that's how we view the best way for Scripture to be applied to our life is to be studied verse-by-verse. But as you're you're finding your way there to Hebrews chapter 7, just a, a couple of questions for you this morning. Have you ever felt distant from God? Have you ever told a friend or a loved one that I feel far from God? Perhaps you feel far from God even this morning. Are you unable to sing, pray, or even read scripture because you feel far from his care, outside of his view, or distant from him perhaps because of your own wanderings and sin? If that describes you this morning, you're in good company. Surely, every single one of us in this room have felt that distance, have said those things that we feel far from God. You see, you desire to be close to God because wired within you by God himself is a longing to be in relationship with him. Psalm 73, 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge. Psalm 42, 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 143, 6, my soul longs for you as a parched land. Indeed, you were designed to be near to your God. Earlier this week, I was reading a Psychology Today article about the innate longings of human interaction. As I was reading that, it dawned on me just the short-sightedness of this article when compared to those scriptures we just read. You see, the secular worldview fails to see our innate desire for human interaction as pointing to something beyond itself, pointing to a desire to be close to God. The article listed the following questions that we seek to have answered in our relationships. Now, just listen to these. Typically, The only thing you'll hear come from this pulpit are quotes or questions or things from godly men, from scripture, from men that we've seen their walk in the faith. But just listen to these questions and tell me that these are not the very questions you ask of God in your desire to be closer to him. Imagine these questions. Are you asking questions of your God? Are you accessible to me? Can I get your attention when I need it? Am I important to you? Are you responsive to me? Can you comfort me when I'm anxious, sad, lonely, or afraid? Will you make some effort to comfort me in those situations? Are we truly engaged in each other's lives? Do you care about my well-being even when we're not together? Do you care about my joys, my hurts, and my fears? Will you care about me consistently and reliably? Does that not describe every question in our heart? 
when we long to be close to our God, when we feel like there's a distance, aren't those the natural questions that well up in our heart? They're not just for human interaction, but for our closeness to our God. It's obvious mankind was desired to be close to God. But what is the reason for that distance in the first place? What is the reason why you feel far from God? Obviously, the answer is sin. Sin is the singular cause for your actual or perceived distance from God. The Hebrews knew that they couldn't draw near to God because of their sin. God is holy, and by definition, he is set apart. We just sang, holy, holy, holy. That is a thrice holy, that is a perfectly holy God. Scripture proclaims that he dwells in unapproachable light, that he's an all-consuming fire, as we'll see later in the book of Hebrews. You see, there is a distance between us and God because of our sin, that God is a blazing fire of holiness that consumes all evil, and no one could be in the presence of God for even a single second without being eviscerated if it were not for the fact that you can be so confident that you're covered in the blood of Christ. This is why Isaiah cries out in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man who is unclean, and I dwell in a land of unclean people. But even just seeing your faces this morning talking about this, this is a difficult thing for us to wrap our mind around, isn't it? This being set apart, being unapproachable, it's foreign to us because we have always had the blessing of looking at God through the lens of the cross. Oh, the wonderful cross that God's own plan to send his own son to satisfy his own wrath that we may draw near. For you, God has always been accessible through Christ's sacrifice. You are privileged, blessed to have lived in that grace with every breath you have ever drawn. Before the cross, mankind's hope was through the Mosaic law, through the old covenant and the Levitical priesthood. We'll see in our text this morning how Christ provided in himself a far better hope. That's why our sermon is titled this morning, A Better Hope, Why You Can Draw Close to God. If you hear one thing this morning, hear this. Hebrews chapter 7 teaches this one beautiful truth, that Christ is your hope by which you can confidently draw near to God. I pray that you would not take that for granted, and this morning perhaps you would have a fresh perspective of all the more thankfulness of your ability to draw near to your God. Father, we pray and ask for that grace this morning to be able to see our need to draw near to you. The awareness of our sin that has separated us from you previous to you, Christ. That we would be honest with ourselves this morning. That we would see ourselves in desperate need of you. And Father, I pray that through the preaching of your word, that we would be encouraged as the apostles sought to encourage these Hebrews, that we would know, although we may feel distant, if we are in you, we are not. I pray that you would go out now and even shape and mold your children as you so desire for your namesake. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Before we begin, uh, I must confess, I, I, wish I, I wish I had four weeks to preach this text. If you guys know me, I talk a lot in general, uh, much less when there's 28 verses and much less when there's so much rich doctrine in a text like this. 
a few weeks ago, we saw in Hebrews the call for us to move on from the elementary doctrines, and by golly, we're doing it today. So I will attempt not to take too many rabbit trails. Uh, I will mention some beautiful doctrines in this text, but uh, we will try not to run down them. Uh, but if you desire to know more on those, uh, please let me know uh, at the tail end of the sermon. I can try to fill you in on those. You see, because this passage is primarily on the hope of drawing near to God. We're trying not to miss the forest for the trees here, and I'll, I'll try to keep us at that 10,000-foot view this morning. So we're talking about this hope, a better hope. How do we know that this is what the text is actually saying? How do we know this is the primary message? Let's quickly look to where we left off last week to see this unfold for us. So let's look to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. We who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Simply put, the apostle wants to build our hopes of drawing near to God by anchoring our hope in the work of Christ as our priest. So how does the apostle seek to continue to build this hope as we enter into chapter 7? How is Christ a better hope? If you're taking notes, the first thing we'll see is by informing us of the superiority of his priesthood. We'll see this in verses 1 through 10. These verses are really just informational. It's almost like a history lesson that we're going to see here, a lesson of who Melchizedek was. So begin reading with me in the word of God, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Yes, this is where we get the, the thought of tithing being 10%. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So as we're understanding who this Melchizedek was, we have to remember that this letter was written to a specific group of people, the Hebrews. They were scattered because of persecution. They had no temple. They had no priesthood. They had no sacrifice. The things that they were longing to draw near to God through were passing away. What the apostle is seeking to do is encourage them that although those old systems and ways are passing away, there is something far better and new in this order of Melchizedek in his new priesthood. This is really just a recap of Genesis 14, if you want to go back and read that this week, of the story of Abraham, and he's going to rescue his nephew Lot when these kings come and take him captive. But what are we to learn from this history lesson? History lessons are great, right? But what are we to learn? That Melchizedek is an A-type, a model, who's pointing towards Christ in his superior priesthood. Notice verse 3, that he resembled Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Both he and Christ were kings of righteousness and peace. Both received homage as a king. Christ, when he was in the manger, both were priests. And Melchizedek is seemingly perpetual when Christ is perpetual. But as we said here in the text, we're seeing that he is superior. Let's see how he is superior to the Levitical priesthood. 
Read with me in verse 4. See how great this man is to whom Abram, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these are also descended from Abraham, but this man who does not have his descent from from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For this, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That's a lot to take in, right? What are, we, what are we trying to understand here, the superiority here of this priesthood? In your bulletin, as you're taking notes, how is Christ's Melchizedek priesthood superior to Levitical priesthood? Number one, Melchizedek received homage from the Levites. Verse four, see how great this man was to whom the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. If there's a king, you'd pay homage to the king because of how great he was. Verse nine, one might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham. He was great. He was superior because he received homage. In the second place, Melchizedek blessed Abraham is how we know he's superior. Abraham had the honor of receiving the promise of God, the promise that through your offspring all the world would be blessed, yet Melchizedek is superior. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. This is a change of pace for us as typically we can draw out so much rich application always through these verses, and we'll slow down and marinate on them. But what are we to take from this? How can you apply to your life this history lesson? If you're like anything like me, and you grew up, and, and, and you were going to school, and you're in a history class, you're like, that's great. What does that have to do with me? The question you may be asking this morning is, how does the superiority of Christ's priesthood allow you to draw near to God? Because that's what we're talking about, the 10,000-foot view. How do we not lose the forest for the trees that The context of this passage is how we draw near to God, but now we have a history lesson. How does the superiority of Christ's priesthood allow you to draw near to God? I would suggest in the first place, as Abraham did. How does it allow you? You now have a king by which you can pay homage to because of his superiority. Yes, it tithes, and we're not going to spend as much time there talking about that tithes. Yes, they're only 10% of your own income, but the greater homage is the giving of all of your life. Romans 12, 2 calls for a life of worship. This means your spiritual gifts were not given to you for you, but for the body, so that way you can edify the body. Do you look at the gifts that were given to you as a way to honor your king? The things that he has given you that you give back to his bride the church? Do you also look at your gifts, your spiritual gifts, not only as a mean to encourage and edify the body, but to evangelize the world? Your life is an homage. What you are doing, everything you do is an act of worship, is an act of homage to your God. Your grades, your work ethic, your leading your family well, are all you presenting to God a life of worship. This is what Abraham did. In the second place, how can you draw near to God? By recognizing his superiority as Melchizedek did. As a priest to Christ's church. Wait a minute. Are you saying that 
I'm a priest. Yes. I'm not saying that. 1 Peter 2.5 says that. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. What does this mean that you're a priest? Without a doubt, believer, you are a priest. The question is, do you know what it means to be a priest? Are you serving like one? What does it mean to be a priest? It means you have unfettered access to your God. Because of the work of Christ as your high priest, you are no longer separated from him. Yes, he is an all-consuming fire. Yes, he dwells in unapproachable light, but he bids you to come unto him in a life of worship. Your sin no longer separates you from your God. And now you have the privilege and the ability to see everything in your life as an act of worship. Your vocation is given to you to live as a priesthood, as a means to serve God. All of our spiritual gifts, if we are in the body of Christ, are different. The priesthood has somehow become this thing where you look at a guy who puts on a microphone or a jacket and serves in an office as a deacon or elder and seeing that as a priest, but the word of God says that we are all serving him. And we serve as the priest served continually, gladly, in every gift that he's given us. The superiority of Christ's priestly ministry is the better hope by which you draw near to God. How does the apostle show Christ to be a better hope by which we draw near to God? First, we saw by informing us of the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood, As you're taking notes, the second we'll see is by convincing us of the necessity of his priesthood. We'll see this in verses 11 through 21. If you're tracking here what the apostle is doing, he's made this claim at the tail end of chapter 6 that Christ is our hope by which we can draw near to God in a way of a Melchizedek priesthood. Then he explains it through a history lesson. Now what he's about to do is argue that, that it's true, that this is a new priesthood. Read with me, starting in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priesthood to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? He asks a question here that's really a rhetorical question. Why is there a need of a new priesthood if something's working well? Why do you buy a new car if your car is doing well? Why do you buy a new phone if your phone's working well, besides having an iPhone just because it's something new? But the reason why, undoubtedly, we do something new is because there was something wrong or defective with the old. And this is what he's arguing here. There was a necessity of a new priesthood. But why? The verse, in verse of the, the text here, says that, there was no perfection to be found in the old system. That is reconciliation to God. If the priesthood existed to allow you to draw close to God, there was no perfection in it. It was not obtainable is what it says. This is why we needed a new priesthood to arise. Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. You can see we're, we're touching some of the depths of understanding the richness of the Old Testament and how it applies to our life. If some of this feels like something in left field to you, I'd encourage you to spend some time in the Old Testament to get this context around here. 
But did you see that since there's a new priesthood and it was necessary, so necessary were new laws. What does that mean? The text doesn't say new law. Did you see that? It says a change in law. But a change in law, what does it mean necessarily a change in the law? First, let me be clear. Christ did not change the Mosaic law. Matthew 5, 17, he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of prophets, but to fulfill them. So if the Mosaic law wasn't changed, what type of change was this? It was a change in jurisdiction of the law. So think with me here for a second so we can understand this, so we can continue to move forward here in the text. There was a necessary new priesthood, and with this new priesthood came a new law. But what does it mean by a new law? The jurisdiction. If you live in the state of Georgia, which I would assume many of us do, we have income tax. But if you were to move to the state of Florida, they do not have an income tax. If you were to drive over the border from Georgia to Florida, the, ch- the law doesn't change itself, but the jurisdiction changes. And when Christ came, we moved from the Mosaic law into the law of Christ, and the jurisdiction is what's changed. What once was your law, Christ fulfilled for you. And now he is built on top of that law and given you the law of Christ. So what applies to you still is the law of Moses. But let's talk about this here for a second because what's in play here really is uh, one of those rabbit trails. One of those rabbit trails here, we could go to the threefold use of the law and we're not going to do that. Look at Ligonier website. They have uh, a beautiful depiction of what the threefold use of the law is. But what we have to understand here is there's a change in priesthood, therefore there's a change in law. So the question we're asking is, why is Christ's Melchizedek priesthood necessary for you to draw near to God? Why is it necessary? Because he did what you or the Levitical priesthood couldn't. He fulfilled the law. Why was it necessary for a change? Because you could not fulfill the law, the civil or the ceremonial law, the washings. And Isaiah God even says he's tired of the sacrifices. They, they aren't appeasing his wrath. They're not actually doing anything. They're not perfect sacrifices. And the law that remains for us is the moral law. So if you want more on the moral law of how Christ built on top of that, look on the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't do away with that law, but he builds on top of it. You see, it took 100% perfection in obeying the law to draw near to God. And this is the core of what I'm hoping you grasp in this section. If you feel far from God, undoubtedly, like we said, it's because of sin. And it took 100% perfection of following the law to be close to God. This, This system was not designed to actually draw you near to God, but to point to something greater, Christ. And Jesus perfectly fulfilled the ceremonial, civil, and moral law for you. Now, how do you draw near? Let's put, we're 10,000 foot view, let's get down, boots on the ground. How do you actually draw near through this? Obedience to the law of Christ. Obedience to the law of Christ. This seems like a paradox, doesn't it? Doesn't everything within us say we, we obey to clean ourselves up so then we can draw near? Isn't that what your flesh tells you that you've got to obey the law so that way you can draw near to God? Christian, hear me. You don't obey the law in order to draw near to God. I'll say it again. You don't obey the law in order to draw near to God. If you have been brought 
near by the blood of the lamb, you obey the law because you have already been brought near. You obey because you have already been brought near. You're not obeying in, in order to try to please God and say, somehow let's, let me into your presence. Am I clean enough? Am I good enough? No, you were already cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, Ephesians 2, 12 through 13. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But catch this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is his work as your priest, to bring you near. So despite as many times you may feel distant from your God, sin is making you feel that distance because of disobedience, but you are not far from him according to the word of God. There was a dire necessity for a new priesthood and thereby a new law, a law by which we could draw near to our God. The old ones provided you no lasting hope. But it's not just the old law. It's not just the Levitical law. There's a reason why most of us, when we are reading through the Bible in a year, get to Leviticus, we stumble and fall because we're like, what does this have to do with me? Everything, because it was your standard that Christ fulfilled. But also, it's not just this old law. It's the laws that you have made up for yourself that are found nowhere in Scripture. For you to be close to God, I've got to be a good person. I can't tell you how many times we hear that in street evangelism. That I just have to do the right things and be this right person. Yes, we should obey out of love for God. But if you are in Christ, you have already been brought near. I know that's a bit of a tangent, but I thought it was a well-worthy one for us to consider this morning. Continue with me in verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. What he's saying here is that the priest, the Levitical priest, came through Levi, and Christ was born through Judah. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. Here we can see the argumentation of the apostle. He's just made this claim that there is a new priesthood and thereby a new law. Imagine you were, you were a Hebrew for a second. How would you feel about that? Would you feel unsure? Would you feel worried? What if someone came and told you that there is a new law a new testimony of Christ, you should rightfully feel skeptical. But in this, this was the plan of God to move from the old covenant to the new covenant. And thereby being a wise teacher of God's word, the apostle is seeking to solidify in these Hebrews' hearts this is true. And for you to be solidified in your heart this morning that Christ is now bidding you to draw near, you need to understand these as well. These are the evidences that a change in priesthood and law occurred. First, we see a changed legacy. Christ came through the lineage of Judah, not Levi. There's something new happening here. The priesthood was no longer through Levi, but through Judah. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident. He's arguing his point here. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. 
who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, for on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is where we pick back up on the context that started at the tail end of chapter 6. And now he's made his point and he's bringing it back to our attention here that this old priesthood provided no hope. None whatsoever. There's a better hope in this evidence of a change. The second change is an eternal efficacy. Efficacy means efficient, that it actually does something. This old priesthood did nothing for you besides show you your need of something else. Anything in your life that is not dependent upon Christ should only show you your need for Christ. You try to build your life on a relationship. When you break up or they die, what happens? You crumble. If you build your life on a job and you lose your job, what happens? You crumble. If you build your life on money, it's quickly gone. If you build your life on anything, it's not efficient to sustain your life. And the proof here that there was a change in a priesthood is the fact that it was eternal. Notice in the text that he says that it's an indestructible life and it's an eternal life that Christ had. These priests would die and year after year there would have to be a new priest. And it was inefficient. And it wasn't sustaining anything, but Christ being eternal provides a better hope because it's not by heritage, but by the power to intercede. Where the law was weak and useless to bring us near to God, this law of Christ brings us near. Verse 20, and it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such with an oath without an oath, but this one was made a priest by an oath, by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The third evidence of a change is a sworn immutability, a sworn immutability. Verse 20, it was not without an oath. God makes an oath. The previous Levites didn't come into office by swearing an oath in office. Think about when our new president became the president of the United States when he made that transition from president-elect to president. He swore an oath of office. But notice there was no oath taken here of the order of Melchizedek, but an oath was sworn by him. This is God's stamp of approval of this new office. That's the 10,000-foot view. Let's put it back in our life as to not lose the perspective here. I told you when we were going on to some loftier thoughts, I would love four weeks to teach on this, and you see why. Perhaps we'll do a class on these doctrines one day, but I don't want to miss the force for the trees of what this means for your life. How is Christ's priesthood a better hope that allows you to draw near to God? Romans 5.5 5 came to mind here because hope doesn't put us to shame. Anything we put our hope in besides Christ puts us to shame. This Levitical line had a dire need of being changed because it only brought shame. Think about if your feeling close to God was dependent on animal sacrifice. The only closeness and peace of mind that you would have is the day that you sacrifice that animal. 
the, the day that the animal was sacrificed and then you walk away and then you swear under your breath, oh man, you gotta go back and do this again? Or you sacrifice and then you have that thought come into your head. Again, this is what I'm saying. We don't ever think about these things because we've lived our entire life on this side of the cross and we don't have to experience this. So if this is feeling disconnected for you, it should if you're in Christ because you've never had to feel the weight of this. Imagine if you did. You feel distant from God now. Imagine if the only time you felt near to God was for that 30-minute span you didn't sin. You truly think you're distant from God now? Imagine this. That true hope in this new and better priest doesn't put you to shame. Only Christ can hold up your eternal weight of hope. He bore it on the cross. Your hope for eternity with your God, your hope for peace with him today, your hope for purpose in life, your hope that you can actually call him Father, that he hears your cries. They were bore on Calvary. They were purchased with a price. And they are sure for you today as surely as you're sitting in those chairs, drawing the very breath in your lungs that he's giving you to have hope. And the second way of how Christ's priesthood is a better hope that allows you to draw near to God is that there is true rest in this hope. There was no rest in any Levitical system. There was no rest in any other system that you may be living your life by. Hope isn't anxiously worrying, frantically trying to keep things together, or even apathetically bystanding. Christ's work as priest was necessary because through it you are freed from the worry, is God pleased with me? Have you asked yourself that question, is God pleased with me? That can be a worrying question for someone who doesn't know this truth. But for you, Christian, you know your Father is pleased with you. Christ's work as priest is necessary because through it you are freed from legalism, trying to frantically make God pleased with you by your self-effort. Christ's work as priest is necessary because through it you are freed from lawlessness, not caring to live a life pleasing to God because you are presuming upon his graces. None of these are true rest, yet in Christ's priestly service unto God on our behalf, we have found true rest as we can draw near to him. The throne of grace is open to you. You may draw near to your God and not be consumed by his holy, 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 all-consuming fire because that wrath was poured out on Christ in your stead. You may draw near and find true rest as we talked about in Hebrews 4. There is a rest for the believer. And that eternal rest is not just an eternal rest, but it's an eternal rest, not just when you die, but now is part of eternity. Now you have that rest. And only through Christ can you have that rest. The necessity of Christ's priestly ministry is the better hope by which you draw near to God. In this final section here, the apostle shows Christ to be a better hope by which we draw near to God by encouraging us of the surety of his priesthood, the surety of his priesthood. These final verses 
or to encourage us that we can indeed draw near. I have a small disclaimer here when I say we. I want to make sure that we understand who the we is. The we are the children of God. Because to draw near to God means that we're covered in his blood, covered by his righteousness, covered by his sacrifice. This doesn't mean that if you're considering who God is to you, that you can't draw near, but what it means is for you to draw near to God in this paternal, relational, loving type relationship requires Christ to be your mediator. That's what we talked about in Hebrews chapter six. But there is surety for us in the household of God. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. In verses 1 through 10, we saw we had a new priesthood. In verses 11 through 21, we saw a new law built on the moral law on the Sermon on the Mount. And here we have a new covenant. If you read through the prophetic books of Scripture, it says all over the prophets, behold, I'm doing something new. I'm doing something new. I'm going to take the law out and not just be on a stone tablet, but I'm going to write in your heart and doing something new. And this is exactly what the apostle would have us see, that Christ has done something new. This new covenant will be the focus of chapter 8. But not only is Christ a priest here, but notice it says a guarantor. A guarantor is a legal representative whose sole duty is to ensure that promises of an agreement are actually received. If you're entering into agreement with someone to exchange goods and services, you would have an attorney or a legal representation that would guarantee you would get that. And that's what we're here to see, that we can be sure we can draw near to God because Christ himself is our guarantee. Christ guaranteed you could draw close to God with a literal blood pact. Don't forget that. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Christ's priesthood is sure because it's not dependent upon many. Notice in the text it says there were many in number. Why his priesthood is sure is because it's only dependent on one person. Think about how fickle we are as human beings, right? If you have a group of friends that you're asking, hey, are you guys all going to show up? I think about it in our missional community at times. I know we've got so many of us and then so many of us have something else going on and we don't always show up. Think about if you had to guarantee and stake your life on something for what would you rather have? Only have to guarantee on one person to rely on one person or multiple people. I don't know what, what bet I'd be taking is one person. And this is what we're to understand here is that this Priesthood is sure because it wasn't dependent on many, but on one. Not on temporal sinful men, but one eternal perfect God-man. Verse 25 comes to the crescendo of the passage, and really everything is building up to this. And this is one I wish we could just spend an entire sermon series on. There's so much beauty just in verse 25. Consequently, That word is there to say because, therefore, because of everything we've said up to this point, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
He is able to save to the uttermost. Us who draw near to God. Uttermost here, this word is translated. He is able to save constantly or at all times. This implies that we are in need of constant saving, even after salvation. What do I mean by that? Again, lofty, hear me. What do we need saving from from after we're saved? Let me explain briefly. There's three tenses of salvation, past, present, and future. We're only going to cover past and present. Past, we have already been saved from the penalty of sin. That was justification. The moment of salvation was given to us. It was perfect, in need of nothing, no works. Boom, we're guaranteed eternity. But in the present, this is what the text is referring to here. Tell me this is not true of your life. We are in daily, hour by hour, minute by minute, need of the saving from the power of sin in our life. That is what is in mind. This is sanctification. This is fighting and killing sin. This is the very thing that makes us feel like we're distant from God. He's able to save us to the uttermost from the presence of sin in your life. Again, we said at the very beginning, the thing that makes you feel distant from God is sin. Why is it good news that you can draw near to God? Because he is saving you even now from the presence of sin in your life. This old priesthood died. They died the death that we will all taste. And they could not make eternal, minute-by-minute intercession for you. And you have need of it constantly. Yes, when God sees you, he sees his son, and that's why you're in good standing, and that's why you can draw near, but you also have a sin nature that's constantly being sanctified. This is what Christ is saving you from as you draw close to God through him. He's constantly cleansing you from the sin that still reigns in your mortal body. But how does he do this? How does he do this? Through his priestly work of intercession. Again, the history here of the high priest is that on the Day of Atonement, there was one day a year that this great sacrifice was made because there's so much sin that goes on in the sacrifices, the blood, the, 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 the incense would be constantly rising throughout Jerusalem. But there was a day set aside apart that the high priest would make a sacrifice for the entire people. Atonement means to make reparation for. Make reparation for what? We've offended God through our sin. And he would go to the altar and make a sacrifice, but then his work wasn't done. He would take the blood from that sacrifice, go into the temple, and cross through the veil into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. He was drawing near, and he would sprinkle that blood on the covenant, on the Ark of the Covenant. This is intercession, taking the blood and interceding and going into the presence of God and saying, this is the sacrifice, this is the blood, here it is, and sprinkling it on the altar. And think about year after year after year, the high priest would go back in, and we're not going to be able to maybe wrap our minds around this, but just imagine with me if you can. That Ark of the Covenant is not like what we see in Indiana Jones, just perfect and sparkly. But think about it, there was no mention of the cleansing of that Ark. Year after year, the priest would go back in and see the dried blood on that ark that he would sprinkle on it, making intercession. God, are you pleased? God, we're we're trying to come back and draw near to you. Forgive us. We're making atonement. But by design, that system points away from itself and saying there's need of something else. Imagine you were that high priest saying, what am I doing here again? I do this year after year after year, and we're still sinful, and there's still no really great hope. 
What's the point of this? What am I getting at here? Christ's priesthood is sure for us because his intercession for your sins is not just one day a year, but every single day. Every single day he's before the throne of God, interceding for you. Every moment of every day because he purchased you with his blood and he is interceding before the Father. You can surely draw near to God through Christ's Melchizedek priesthood work of intercession. Again, another place here I wish we had time. Limited atonement is in mind here. We really don't have time to cover this at all. Um, those who the sacrifice was for, so was the atoning intercession for. It's one work of the high priest. We can't separate those out. If you'd like to know more about that, um, I would love to talk to you later. But there's one work of the high priest, and that's why it's a consistent thought for us that they are conjoined together. Verse 26 as we continue seeing the surety of this priesthood. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a, such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and those for who, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The point, you can surely draw near because there was only one sacrifice needed. You can draw near because you don't need another sacrifice. You can surely draw near to God through Christ's Melchizedek priesthood work of atonement. Again, in mind here, talk to me later. You can probably talk to Heath and Jake about my view of the Catholic Church, and they'll give you a funnier version. But in, in mind here is there's a one sacrifice for all. Thus, the thought of transubstantiation, according to this text, is heretical. Again, don't have time, but it's a little fun fact, a little rabbit trail that we can scurry down if you want to later. Atonement, like we said, was to make amends or reparations for wrongdoing. This is what Christ did. He removed the distance between us and God because of our wrongdoing. So before we leave this morning, after running through a text of scripture, and I feel like it's a sprint, I can see some of you guys sweating alongside of me, and seeing so many rich doctrine, surely I want to encourage you if those questions at the beginning described you, described your distance from God. I don't want to leave that up in the air and leave you hanging. How does the surety of Christ's priesthood allow you to draw near to God? Because the surety of Christ's priestly minister, ministry answers every question your soul asks when you want to draw near to God. So I'm just going to ask you to do me a favor here at this point. You can jot notes if you want in this section. But my intent of this is just to read through some of those questions that we read at the very beginning, the ones that we got from the Psychology Today article about what we look for in a relationship. And how we said it perfectly described our relationship with God. What I want you to do is sit back and listen to these questions if you have them and your doubts of whether you can draw near to God. I want you to let the word of God wash over you and remove any doubts that you may have 
of your ability to draw near to God. But again, there's a disclaimer. If Christ is not your Lord, if you do not believe that he has died on the cross, making atonement and sacrifice for you, these promises are not for you, and that distance is there as a good, gracious gift from the Father to draw you close. But any of you that may feel distant, I want us to leave here. I want us to leave here never saying that phrase again. I feel far from God. That would be my prayer for you. That's been my prayer this week because you would be anchored in these verses. You may say that, but you would be able to rightly preach the gospel through these verses back to your flesh and say, no, he's brought me near. So listen to these questions. Maybe questions you have in your doubts and let the word of God wash over you. Are you accessible to me? Ephesians 2, 18, for through him we both have access and one spirit to the Father. He's accessible. Can I get your attention when I need it? Psalm 46, 3, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You have your Father's attention. When I ask for your attention, can you be available to me? 1 Peter 3, 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. He sees you. Can you listen to what I'm saying? Isaiah 59, one, my ears are not dull that they cannot hear. He hears your cries. Are you responsive to me? Deuteronomy 4, 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? He's responsive. Can you comfort me when I'm anxious, sad, lonely, or afraid? Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He is your great comforter. Will you make some effort to comfort me in those situations? Psalm 34, 17, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You know this to be true if you've experienced it yourself. Are we truly engaged in each other's lives? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? He's engaged as he lives within you. Do you care about my well-being even when I, even when we are not together? John 14.18 I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's surely done that through his spirit. Do you care about my joys, hurts, and fears? Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In him, all fears and hurts are dispelled. Will you care about me consistently and reliably? Deuteronomy 31, 8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. 
He is consistent and reliable because he is always with you. The surety of Christ's priestly ministry is the better hope by which you draw near to God. Every single one of those are promises from God's word. And yes, sin causes us to feel distant. But praise God, we have a better priest and a better hope that has ensured us that we as his children can draw near. I love this passage because it both informs our mind and the rich doctrines and encourages our hearts. It's a sure anchor for you as we talked about in Hebrews 4 that we can have a surety of salvation, of eternal rest. But this passage, this chapter, is a sure hope that you can draw near not just on that day, but every day until that day. What do you do with this? What do you do with this truth that you can draw near? You don't let it be ineffective. You don't harden your heart towards it. You don't spend another day running from Scripture because you think God's ashamed of you. You don't spend another day without letting your face hit the ground in prayer, thankful for this. You press into this fellowship all the more because it's another way by which you draw near to God. I would argue one of the best ways God's given us. You commit to this body. You commit to the gospel and seeing it advanced in this community. If you leave here today knowing anything, it's that you're near to God, and that is not just to bind you up and to make you feel better, even though this letter is an encouragement. It is to send you out on mission. As you have been brought near, you seek to bring others near. What was Christ's mission here on earth? Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You're a royal priesthood, a minister of reconciliation. You are now serving by entering into the same work that he entered into as he bid his priests to draw near to his holy temple. We are now the temple of which he lives in, and so you are never far from God, and therefore you go with the power at work within you, as we say each and every week here. If this message does anything for your heart, if it does anything for your mind, if it does anything for your hands, let it be a thankful heart that you get to see this side of the cross and live every single day in light of it. Because everything we just covered in the depths of a Levitical priesthood that probably, if you're honest, you're like, I don't really care about because it doesn't feel like it applies to me. I've heard that from so many people. Let it encourage you that you have a better priest in Christ that you can draw near to your Father, and He cares. And let it send us out as the Branch Church Milledgeville into this city as a shining beacon of the gospel, rightfully proclaiming the truth in love. The truth is that we are sinful and separated from God. But the truth also is but God being rich in mercy. We must have both. We must live a life that proclaims we actually believe we are close to our God. Because otherwise this is just informing your minds and allowing you to be spiritually fat and lazy. 
maybe binding you up because you've been in a cycle of sin and now you feel encouraged and now you can make it a couple more days before you crash land into another Sunday. Let it be effective. Call it to mind. Memorize those verses. Trust your God. Draw near. And the promise of scripture is, as you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Father, thank you for the truth of this scripture. That you surely are our better hope by which we draw near. That you surely are the good and gracious God. So Father, it's our prayer that we, as we continue in worship through song, would behold you, behold your work, behold the mystery of it, the majesty of it, the depths of it, the comfort of it, the challenging of it, and that we would be a people consumed, living in light of it. So Father, as we draw near to you, as we pour out our hearts, May it be a sweet offering, all for your name and your glory's sake. Amen.